This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. When you grow up with domestic violence, housing instability, and no parental direction, how do you have the tools to be a healthy, functioning, contributing member of society? You don't. My guest today, Jose Vargas, had no one in his corner as a child. His understanding of what a, quote, normal life was like was skewed by a life experience filled with violence, hopelessness, and fear. Take a minute to imagine what that must feel like. This does not excuse the choices and behavior he made as an adult, but it does explain how he got to that point. We internalize the verbal and nonverbal messages of our peers, parents, and communities. Most of us only live with our parents for a short time, but their impact is felt lifelong, for good and for bad. Depending where you live and who you live with can change the trajectory of your life. We all need someone to believe in us. Most of the time that someone is our parents, but what happens when you never get that? This is the story of what that looks like in Jose's life. Jose, welcome to the Gramercy Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story. I can't wait to learn what you have to teach me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Here's an easy question for you to get us started. If we had the ability to time travel and you could go anywhere in history at any time in the past, present, or future, where would you like to go and why? I would choose to live in Jalisco with my grandmother. That, that was, I could say, the one time period of, I, during my childhood where I felt I was loved unconditionally. I've, I've actually lived with her on several occasions. Um, the earliest one, I think I was around four or five. And then it would happen pretty much periodically every year, sometimes two, three months at a time. I was always eager to go back. I always had other cousins that were staying with her, so I, I'd enjoy their company because I don't have any brothers or sisters. So I really looked forward to returning. Everything was a lot slower. Everything was mellow. You'd be able to enjoy the countryside, enjoy the river, enjoy the animals. It was just simpler living. Wow. It sounds like your grandma was a super special person and made a very big impact in your life. It makes me curious to learn what your childhood was like, if this was your safe favorite place. Growing up, uh, 
my father was a violent alcoholic and my mom was always working. She's ever since I can remember, she always had two jobs. So she wasn't really around. And because of the, the constant uh, violence, eventually my mom found the courage to leave. I was approximately five and we were constantly moving all around LA County. Um, Cause every time he would discover where we lived, he'd either try to coerce me or try to kidnap me. So, and they'd get into fights and, I mean, he ended up, by the time I was five, he put her in the coma twice. Jose, this makes me so sad. I can't imagine what a sad childhood you had and what you witnessed between your parents. How did you cope as a five-year-old? It was real difficult to deal with because I had nobody to speak to. And the way my mom was raised, it was pretty much speak when spoken to. So I didn't have an outlet. I didn't, like, when I would try to voice my things or mention things, I would always be told, like, shut up, or don't say nothing, or this and that. So I got, as a young kid, I, I got used to not mentioning my thoughts or my feelings or even acknowledging them. So I learned that early on. Um, once my mom separated from him, uh, there was a while we lived in a car, and then we were staying at a friend's garage. And then we were staying at, like, we went, we bounced around for a long time. Um, it wasn't until we moved to South Central. That's where I kind of stayed for a minute. The only thing that did change while we lived there was the elementaries I went to. I literally went to all the elementaries because I kept getting kicked out because I didn't really know English. All I knew was Spanish because my mom only spoke Spanish. So. I was usually hungry, and at the time, I didn't realize my solution to it was drinking a lot of water. But what I didn't realize was that makes me go to the restroom a lot. <laughs> but when I was a kid in school, I'd constantly, like, tell the teacher, oh, I gotta go to the restroom. And after a while, they would think I'm trying to, like, just stay out of the class. So I would tell the little girls, tell them I gotta go to the restroom, tell them I gotta go to the restroom. So they would tell the teacher in English, and eventually, because of the miscommunication or whatever, or them misperceiving that I was just trying to avoid their class, there'd be a confrontation or whatever. And I ended up getting kicked out. By the time I was in the fourth grade, I think I went to like six elementaries. And some of them I used to walk really far. One of them I got kicked out because they realized I was so far. I was walking home one day and one of the teachers ran into me and she's all like, where are you going? I go, I'm going home. She's all like, where do you live? And I just pointed in the direction I live. She goes, well, let me give you a ride. So she gave me a ride and it was quite a distance, but I didn't mind. To me, it was like a little adventure. I was a kid. So eventually when she took me home, she told me, you know, you realize you're not supposed to be going to this elementary. And I'm like, why not? She goes, because you live too far. Something happened to you. And I'm like, nothing happens to me. I've been walking this whole time. And she's all like, no, I'm going to have to notify the administration or whatever. Eventually, I got kicked out. Jose, that is just awful. So were there no teachers who were your allies or that you felt you could confide in or ask for help? No. I, I think the last elementary I went to, uh, for the sake of me, I can't remember her name, but I've always remembered her actions. Uh she knew I lived far, and she used to give me a ride after school every day. 
And during the summer, her, her parents lived somewhere. I don't know where it was, but it was nice. And they had a swimming pool. So she used to take a handful of us. Like she'd take half of the class on, a, on, on one weekend and then the other half on the next weekend. And that would happen pretty much only during the summer. And then she invited us to the movie theater once. I've always remembered that because she was the first teacher that actually did more than, mm. I mean, even my own parents. It's kind of ironic that one day she's telling a story. I've never forgotten this. She was telling a story about when she was young. She was in college and how they started handing out drugs and all that and how they were trying to force her into using drugs. However, because of the relationship I had with her, I was a kid. So I, make a, I made a joke about it. And I still remember the face she made. And after that day, nothing was ever the same. Oh. And I've always thought about her, like, wanting to apologize. I mean, I was a kid. I didn't realize what the message she was trying to send. Yeah. And I made a joke about it, and the whole class laughed. And ever since then, things just changed. I mean, in spite of that, I've always thought about her, and I've, I've always wished to be able to reach out to her and just apologize. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought, I didn't see her as my teacher. I saw her as a friend. Mm-hmm. So when she was telling the story, I, I thought I could joke around with her because mm. we're friends. I, I just didn't see the big picture. I didn't see she was trying to instill in us to stay away from drugs and don't associate with people with drugs. Mm-hmm. We were little kids. I mean, I was like in the fourth grade. I still remember her car. She had a GT Celica. <laughs> <laughs> the things that stick with us. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it is. Did you go home to an empty house every day as a child? or empty apartment, or wherever yeah, you ended up living at the time? It, it, was, it was an empty apartment. Mm-hmm. Did you live in fear of your father finding you? Every day. What about your relatives? Any uncles, aunts, cousins, extended family that you could turn to, or from his side or your mom's side? I When I was a kid, I, I tried a couple of times, but I saw the result. And because of that, I uh, said, why bother? It, 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 it creates a whole different situation. I tried reaching out to an aunt when my parents found out it became an issue. My uncle ended up beating her up. And then I tried reaching out to an uncle. And then he was saying I was overreacting. They ended up getting into a fight. So I'm like, after that, I just, I mean, if I can't trust my own parents, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense that I wouldn't trust my, my uncles or my aunts. So violence seemed to be an integral part of your life from the youngest of ages. Yeah, I, I, I could remember two major incidents between my parents. At first, I thought it was just me imagining it, but I, the past four years, I, I've had a real sincere and open relationship with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned more about her in the past four years than I have my whole life. Wow. Prior to that, all I really knew was her birthday. That was because I found out by accident because we went to dinner and then one of the waitresses asked her, like, what's the occasion? And she thought I wasn't listening. She's like, it's my birthday. So from then on, I remembered, okay, every time it's January 10th, it's her birthday. Wow. However, that's all I really knew about her. But now, I mean, now I understand why she is the way she is. And she did the best she could. There was a lot I didn't know. Yeah. Like a lot of things make sense now. The The earliest memory I recall is my father had, had taken me and he took me to my aunt's house. 
And somehow my mom found out. So she went to my aunt's house to pick me up. However, while she was going there, he was already taking me in the car somewhere else. So she basically flagged him down and he pulled to the side. She pulled me out of the window from the car and put me on the sidewalk and told me to stay there. So when she went back to try to get my clothes, she opened the door to grab the clothes and he just floored it mm. and he started dragging her. And it wasn't till the whiplash of one of the posts that hit the door that it just swung her. And I just remember wanting to run to her, but I remember she told me to stay there. And that's the last I remember. And I just remember feeling stuck, like my feet were in concrete. But I was concerned about my mom. And I see my father driving away. And that's the last I remember of that incident. I'm so sorry. I cannot imagine what that does to a child's psyche to witness such violence of the people who are supposed to protect and care for you. Yeah, the, the other occasion I recall is kind of the same scenario. This time we had made it back to the house and I was young. If I remember correctly, the when I was in her arms happened first and then the dragging happened second. I was in her arms and they're arguing and he just opens the trunk, he grabs some kind of old tire or whatever, or a, one of those old jacks, something. And then he just swings at her head, knocks her out. So we land on the floor and I'm like trying to re like get my mom to respond or whatever. And one of my uncles, he just ran past me and they grabbed him and they kept telling him like, you're going to kill her. She has your son. And then he, he was like belligerent or whatever. And I remember when the ambulance, when the uh, fire department got there, which I, which I found, I, I think that was a moment that I kind of dreamed of becoming a fireman. Mm -hmm. When they got there, they grabbed me because I was full of blood, but I was, it wasn't my blood. However, they thought, it, they thought the blood was mine. So they started checking me and they were talking to me in English, but I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. So um, they're like touching me everywhere and trying to clean me up. They're trying to find where the wounds are. And I'm trying to run to my mom. And I remember this, this fireman, he, he tells me in Spanish, like, calmate, like, calm down. Everything's going to be okay. My goodness. Did you ever learn what it was that caused your dad to become such a violent person? Not for a long time. Now that I've spoken to my mom, I, I give her a lot of credit because despite what he put her through, she never spoke ill of him. She never mentioned none of the stuff she did. She never, she would just be like, oh, that's a past, don't worry about it. Let's focus on the future. However, now that we have an open and sincere relationship, we can pretty much talk about anything. Anything that comes to mind, I could ask her. Mm hey, -hmm. remember when this happened? And she's open now and she mm. explains things because mm -hmm. in the past she, she didn't really explain things. If she bothered to say something, it'd be in fragments or whatever, or else generally it'd just be this look. Like if she gave me this look, I know that meant I got to stop or I got to shut up or mm -hmm. I got to come to her. However, she's the one that mentioned that he was very jealous and he didn't like the fact that she would stand up for herself. What I failed to realize was that many of the times 
that he ended up hitting her was because he was being abusive to me. However, I never saw it that way. I used to think when he used to hit me, it was because I did something wrong and I had it coming. Mm. So I overlooked the fact that he was hitting me or abusing me. And I was just focusing and concerned for her because I knew he was going to hurt her. Did you grow up with a lack of hope or with any type of anger or resentment? Or did you just stuff all this inside and cope in your own way? I think a little bit of above, depending on where I was Mm -hmm. during my childhood. There was a time where I wished she would never come back. There were moments where I would wish we would just leave. Mm -hmm. There were moments where I resented my mom, like, why are we still here? Like, why are you letting him hit you? There were moments where I felt I was at fault. Um, It it was always like, it varied because I was trying to figure it out and I couldn't figure it out. But I was... I understand now I was never going to figure it out. I was no. a kid. However, at the time, there were moments where I would blame myself. I would blame my father. I would blame my mom. I would blame my aunts, my uncles. Depending on what the circumstance was, mm-hmm. I didn't see things with clarity. I didn't see things objectively. And even though I was an emotional kid, I had no idea what I was feeling. Well, how could you? You've not been taught to evaluate your feelings at all, ever. Yeah, that's true. And more importantly, I never expressed them. I didn't start expressing everything I went to with my mom until four years ago. And it took pretty much a few years of 15-minute phone calls, because that's how they allowed us, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And whatever came to mind, that's the topic I would discuss with her. And a lot of times my experiences would be on hold because something would come up to where I'd start asking her questions. And she gave me a lot of clarity because a lot of things I misperceived. I misjudged them. I made assumptions. And this whole time, what was feeding my anger and my resentment was false. However, I, I I didn't know that. Didn't know it at the time, yeah. At the time, I had no idea what I was seeing and what, like, okay, that and that, okay, that's ABC. But in reality, it was XYZ. Uh-huh. So she sent you to her mom in Jalisco? Yeah. Did you get to share anything with your your grandmother? No, I feared um, she would turn into everybody else. Oh, wow. So I never told her anything. No wonder you treasured those times then. It was like a different world for you. Yeah, it was like an escape. So why um, didn't you just stay there? I felt I needed to be there for my mom. Oh. I needed to earn her approval. I needed to earn her love. I uh, I yearned for her love. And, her, and it's funny because now that we have it, you know, I, I told her like this whole time. Right now we have a great relationship, but it's not where I see ourselves. I like to be, I like for it to be a lot better. And then she was, she, she, she mentioned like for the first time, I've, I've wanted this for a long time too. I mean, I still remember December, 
Christmas of 2016 was the first time I heard her say she loved me. Oh my And it's the goodness. first time I expressed to her in person. It meant a lot to me. Yeah, I can see why. Did this family dynamic happen all the way through your adolescence? I think uh, the violence discontinued kind of when I was in the middle of junior high because we had finally stabilized somewhere. Because even though I think the major transition was when I grew up in South Central, that was like the first instance where we stayed in one home for, for quite a while. However, everything I was surrounded by was, I mean, back then it was, it was chaotic. I, I didn't see it as chaotic. I, I thought it was normal. I'd be out till the lights turn on. I had basically no supervision, so I was pretty much free to do whatever I wanted. I would hang out with other kids around the neighborhood. And we'd be going to downtown LA, we'd be going, even now when I travel like around the city, I recall traveling and now I could see the distance. At the time, it didn't matter how far it was. We'd either go walking, jump on a bike or jump on the bus. And even though we didn't have no money, we just jump on the bus from the back door. Now I think about it and it's like, man, like it's crazy some of the things I used to do as a kid with the mm -hmm. other kids. We were all kids. We could have easily got hurt. We could have, mm -hmm. we were basically endangering ourselves multiple times on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So did you get to continue any education after high school? No, I never, I never graduated high school. I erroneously thought I didn't need academics to make money because I was hustling. I was I had a job. Plus, I was I was a known fence. I was buying and selling, mm -hmm. making money anywhere there was to make money. I was involved. Mm -hmm. So my mindset was, what do I need education for? I'm already making money. So it wasn't until I got to prison that I realized I do need my academics. <laughs> By chance, unknowing to me, uh, one of my instructors for office services and related technology. She signed me up for the PGED. Um, I had I had no idea until I got the ducat. She was pretty strict, so I went in the morning to show her the ducat. I have to leave early. She's all like, why? And I go, because I have to go do this. I don't know what this is. And she just laughed. She goes, it's to do your PGED. And I still remember, I'm like, why do I have to do PGED? My mindset was, I'm gonna die in prison. Well, oh, what no. do I need this for? I, 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 didn't, I didn't believe I was going to get out. So my mindset was, I'm going to do whatever I have to do in prison to survive because this is going to be my life now. And she was all like, I want you to go take the pre-GD. And I remember being reluctant about it. Like, why? I don't have to go take it. She goes, yes, you do. It's, it's a priority ducat. You have to, or else I'll give you a write-up. I'm like, ah, go ahead. Add it to my bill. And I remember she waited for me when the class ended. And she's all like, look, uh, do, you, uh, do, do you take, look, just go take the test. And if you don't pass it, then I won't push you to go again. I'm like, all right. So I said, what the hell? I went, took the pre-DD. My luck, I passed it. <laughs> so then when I see her next time, she's all like, so how'd it go? I'm like, I don't know. I was trying to be like nonchalant about it. And she's all like, 
did you pass? And I'm like, I don't know. Because I, I said, well, if I pass, then she's going to force me to do something else. So I didn't want to tell her that I passed. So then she's all like, you know, I know you passed, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I did. She goes, you know, you passed because they sent you a thing saying you passed. And I'm like, yeah, so what? And she's all like, all right. So then like a week and a half later, I get another decade. This time it's for the GED. I'm like, oh, man, she set me up. <laughs> I remember I was mad at her. I'm like, what the hell? I was under the assumption that the pre-GD is easier than the actual GED. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to study. I'm going to have to, because I don't want to look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the pre-GD is a lot harder than the GED. <laughs> <laughs> so I go and take the GED and I pass. Congratulations. Like, Thank you. So I'm like, so same thing again. What happened? I'm like, I don't know. So then this time she shows me the results. She goes, you actually did good. So you know what's next, right? And I go, oh, no, there is no next. Leave me alone. <laughs> mm -hmm. She goes, no, you're going to sign up for college. And I'm like, yeah, right. I remember laughing at her. And lo and behold, I end up starting college. Wow. And two years later, I earned my AA. And then as the years go on, I said, well, even if I am never going to get out, at least it's keeping me entertained. That's mm -hmm. like mind wise, like mm -hmm. it's keeping me preoccupied. It's all right. I just kept taking classes. Some I even did twice. <laughs> oh my goodness. As long as I had access to the books, because back then they didn't have the e-readers or they didn't have computer yeah. laptops or whatever. So it was all books. So I started associating with other guys that were taking classes and I'd be like, Hey, uh, is anybody going to use that book after you? And then I end up getting the job in the library. So then I start making copies of the books. So then I had access to all the books. So as time went on, I just, I would take this class. I would take that class. And then I started attending two colleges. I started doing Paulo Verde College also. And I got some certificates for various things. Here's, here's one funny thing. I got, I got a certificate for computer information systems or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I never touch a computer. <laughs> every, just every, from every, reading the book. <laughs> just from reading the book. It sounds uh, like you got addicted to learning. Yeah, it was keeping me in a chaotic uh, environment. It was keeping uh -huh. me preoccupied. Time would fly. And I imagine, yeah. All, all the free time I had, it was required for me to do the, the, the book work and all that. It, it was like my, I guess you could say, it became my addiction. Mm -hmm. um, some guys get high, some guys get drunk, some guys do ridiculous exercises for three, four hours a day. Um, I think they're paying for it now. but mm -hmm. And then some of it was mandatory, so I had to do at least an hour of exercise, rigorous exercise. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed playing sports. I was always playing either whatever ball came out first, whether it was soccer, mm -hmm. basketball, or volleyball. That's where you'd find me. Yeah. Whoever takes the ball out first, I'm there. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. 
They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. What were the circumstances that led to your incarceration? Because you said that you didn't think you were ever going to get out. Like you, were you a lifer? Were you sentenced yes. to life? I was sentenced to 15 years to life plus 10 years for the use of a firearm. What was the crime? Second degree murder. Um, yeah. And was this, did this happen while you were hustling? While you were just surviving on the streets? Yes. Yeah. Did you have adequate representation? No, I don't think I did. No. I didn't even trust my representation, to be honest with you. Because of the lifestyle I lived, I, I didn't trust anybody. Really, who can blame you, though? <laughs> with your story of how you grew up, it, it makes sense that you would be very distrustful of anybody in your life, really. Yeah, it, I, I usually kept everybody at our arm's length. Uh-huh. And I never really wanted anybody to know where I lived. Mm-hmm. That's just the way I've been since I was a kid. What about hope? Did you ever have hope or were you a hopeless child, teenager, adult? I think it's fair to say I was hopeless. I was just going through the motions. I didn't have no aspirations. I didn't have no goals. I was attending high school. Even though I was attending high school and I was doing so-so, it was just going through the motions. I didn't really mm -hmm. see myself graduating. I didn't really see myself having a career. I didn't even know what a career was. So who or what spoke into your life? Was it the instance with the where the officer said, I want you to get your free GED or when you realized, hey, I'm good at this, I can learn things. What was it that shifted your mindset? Because you don't seem like the hopeless, untrusting person that you described to me. At, at what time when I transitioned into academics or when I decided to change my lifestyle? Because it was two major, there's a big gap between both. <laughs> what was the initial transformation where you started down the path of maybe things could change? And then where was the heart transformation that you actually did it for yourself? The initial was when Ms. Gonzalez signed me up for the PGED. Prior to that, however, the reason I was willing to even like consider her, her, her bargain or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. uh, regarding taking the test. She was the first to actually ask like about my family. Mm -hmm. She was the first to ask about my daughters. She asked me if I had any plans. She asked me if I saw myself just remain in prison or actually getting out. Um, some of the questions I didn't have an answer to. I had had no idea and had never thought about it. Mm -hmm. 
However, just the fact that she was asking, and she was an older woman, she reminded me of some of my aunts. So I was very respectful to her. And so that's why when she asked me to take the pre-GED, I felt inclined to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once I passed it, I was kind of shocked, yet I was happy, like, wow, I actually passed it. Like this whole time, I, was, I thought I wasn't worthy of even taking the test. Mm. I also didn't want to do it because I didn't want to stand out. Because you're amongst criminals, you're amongst the worst of the worst. So it's like, you don't want to make yourself seem, well, at the time, I didn't want to make myself like I was smarter than them. Mm-hmm. Even though I knew I was, I didn't want to make it evident because I was just trying to go under the radar. I was just trying to do the minimum I had to do, the minimum violence I had to do to where I'm not basically killing somebody else. Oh, my. That was one main reason I didn't want to take the test. Really? That's no. interesting. Just to stay under the radar. That's really fascinating. I learned how to stay under the radar since I was a kid. For sure. That was your survival mechanism, it sounds like. So it fit like a glove once I was in prison. It's like, okay, I'm in a violent environment. Anything could happen in a split second. I, I still find myself being hypervigilant even now. Really? Every time I go somewhere, I look for the exits. I see who's who, who could potentially be of harm to me and who I don't have to worry about. Wow. Were you ever afraid that you'd end up like your, your father or were you purposeful in trying to be exactly opposite of him? I tried being the opposite. However, I only managed to do a couple of things that wasn't like, one, I don't drink. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Mm-hmm. I've never tried drugs. However, I have sold drugs. Mm. I've interacted with drug addicts. I've, re- I've interacted with alcoholics. And when it came to relationships, I carried over a lot of what he used to do as far as verbal abuse, as far as um, playing games. Like the main thing, I erroneously thought, well, as long as I never hit a woman or I never throw something at a woman, I'm not like my dad. Mm-hmm. Failing to realize that I was doing the verbal abuse, failing to realize I was doing the financial abuse, mm-hmm. failing to realize I was doing all kinds of other abuses. So it's like it wasn't until I began reflecting on myself and working on myself that I realized all these things. Wow. Because in my mind, I wasn't like my father. I was better than my father. Mm-hmm. However, I did many things like that. What do you think the community or, I don't know, any organization could have done to have reached you or reached your father and, and educated you on more positive ways to live and treat people? Is there anything that could have been done or no? I, I believe so, because as far from my father, I, I can speak for him um, based on what I saw and, and, and what I recall. It didn't matter what he had. He, he is who he was. He's, he wasn't going to change. However, I do recall 
there was a program when I used to live in South Central. Actually, there was two programs. One of them was faith-based. They used to go and pick us up and take us to a church. I don't know where that church was, but it was kind of far. It was a huge church. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole church was full of kids from all over South Central. And they would have gatherings. Like, I recall one of them was Easter because they gave me this huge Easter basket. I was like, wow, I've never received an Easter basket. Um, that, that was one instance, one organization I recall. However, they only functioned that one summer. That was it. No follow through. After, no, there was no follow through absolutely whatsoever. Another program that I was on the verge of telling the officer, I can't remember. I've been, I've been trying to, by my brain, trying to remember the program. I remember it was something about D.A.R.E., but it, it involved the LAPD explorers or something. I can't remember exactly, but basically what they would do is they had to give my mom's permission for us to be able to go to the LAPD that was in downtown L.A., and they would basically give us like a rundown, like drugs and what we should stay away from. All of us would be assigned like one explorer or officer. I, I don't even recall what he was, but he was dressed like an officer. So I saw him as an officer, mm -hmm. but I think he was just an explorer. Now I realize I think he was just an explorer, the, the, the step below actually being an officer. I remember they would go pick us up in a bus. It would be a school bus and everybody in the neighborhood, not everybody, but majority of kids, We'd get in, we'd go over there, and they'd give us lunches and all that, and they'd basically educate us, give us information, this and that. And I remember, uh, I think two nights before, my father had somehow ran into my mom, and he tried chasing her down or whatever. She ended up running. When she got home, she was, like, dripping in sweat. And she was like, your father was chasing me. I don't know if he, he saw me or whatever, but mm. we were getting our stuff ready because if he did, we were going to leave. Mm -hmm. so that weekend because i can't recall if it was saturday or sunday that's when they would pick us up so i had made up my mind that i was going to tell the explorer who my thought at the time was an officer our circumstance and that my father is dangerous mm -hmm. and they never came to pick us up oh. the program never came oh no what a lost opportunity yeah oh man so it sounds like you lived in a lot of fear yeah did you ever get to work through this trauma with any counselors or special people you met volunteers any organizations while you were in prison or after being paroled yes during prison uh once i decided to change my life because when I, when I started my academics, I erroneously thought, okay, I, I've, I've made the decision and I'm going to change my lifestyle. However, I erroneously thought I could do it on my own. I said, I got myself in this situation, I'm going to get myself out. Mm. And I erroneously thought, well, as long as I don't sell contraband in prison and I don't associate with them, I'm good. Mm -hmm. However, I overlooked some major high-risk situation I was still involving myself with, with prison politics, with the guys I was associating with. 
because they were still doing other legal activities. At the time, I thought I was changing and I had changed. However, I was still straddling the fence. I was doing good, but at the same time, I was still doing bad. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't till seven years later, after multiple relapses, whether it was in getting write-ups or in violence. I, w- I remember I was, I was in the hole and an officer came to my door and he said my name. He goes, do you want to go to child custody court? And I told him, child custody court? I go, you got the wrong guy. I think there's, there's another guy with my last name on the other side of the tier. So he left. He got on the phone. He came back. He goes, no, you are the person I'm looking for. Do you want to go to child custody court? And I'm like, why would I want to go to child custody court? My kids are adults now. And then he, he basically told me my own words. He goes, so let me get this straight. You do not want to go to child custody court because your kids are adults now. And I go, yeah. So he walked away. He got on the phone. And I started contemplating on it that night. And it dawned on me, damn, I'm still doing the same thing. And my daughters are adults now. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Mm. And that's when I made up my mind. Wow. I'm not getting involved with politics. I'm not giving my opinion anymore. I'm not. I don't care what happens to anybody. I don't care. Your issues are your issues. I'm just focused on me. Not like seven years earlier. I didn't tell everybody that, hey, that's it. Don't ask me for nothing. I don't want to get involved. This time I was going to voice it and let people know, like, look, that's not what I want to do anymore. I'm good. And whatever happens, happens. Well, you took a stand and you drew the line. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And um, I had my moments where, because when you're in that lifestyle, you have people that like you, you have people that dislike you, you have people that look up to you, you have people that hate you. Mm-hmm. And the people that hate you are the ones that, are, that's when they're going to come up most. Yeah. And they would call me this, call me that, and I just look at them, just keep walking. Wow. And there were times where, I thought I was going to get jumped or stabbed. And I just said, it is what it is. I'm good with either way. I'm done. And it never, it never happened. The, the most that ever happened is uh, the comments and uh, the body postures as if they were going to do something. I don't know if their intentions were for me to roll it up or get off the yard or go to the officers. I don't know what their intentions were. Mm-hmm. However, I just didn't take it personal. I didn't let it get to me. And I just kept on the path. What were the circumstances that caused you to be released instead of staying in prison for life? I think doing all the work in regards to being able to express everything I've been through and what I was thinking at the time However, I have to I have to accept the fact that I didn't do this on my own. I mean, I participated in a lot of programs while in prison. At the beginning, I was doing CGA. Um, the librarian, she she kind of trusted me, and she wanted us to run a group of addiction, so she was our sponsor. I also did Kairos. That's a pretty good program. 
from there, I traveled to another prison. And there I did uh, prisoners against child abuse. And then I also did prison of peace on how to be a mediator. Nice. Um, that one kind of fit like a glove because when I was in politics, that's what I was doing. Because I was fluent in English and Spanish, I was basically there to make sure there was nothing lost in translation. I erroneously thought at the time I was being of service and helping the cause or whatever, but I, I was just as bad as a guy stabbing the guy for whatever reason. So, really? Yeah. Wow. I, I, I didn't realize, realize it at the time, but I, I was just guilty mm. because I was still part of the same lifestyle. At the time, my excuse was, well, I'm just handing a message out. I'm not actually doing the violence. However, I'm just as guilty as a person perpetrating the violence. I just the whole system, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like every group I did, it's almost like peeling an onion. Like I was discovering more about myself. And as the programs went on, as I kept going to different prisons, I kept involving myself in different programs. Each program would allow me to peel more up. And then when I started facilitating many of them, it allowed me to use my own examples. So I was beginning to open up, especially mm. after the relationship with my mom started. Because prior to that, I would always say, oh, I have a friend that X, Y, and Z. Or I have, I know somebody that this, this, and that. What they didn't realize is I was talking about myself. But I would make it seem like it was somebody else. It wasn't until... I began the relationship with mom and I started like really, really digging deep that I started saying, this is what I experienced. This happened, that happened, this mm. happened. However, my mom was the first one I opened up to really? in regards to all those experiences. The second one was the father at one of the prisons because I, as I was trying to learn more about myself and how to express it, how to present it, I was still failing to see some of my flaws in how I was presenting myself. Because even though I may have the best intentions of explaining what I've been through, it may still be misperceived. So the point of us gathering and helping each other was letting there be no doubt that I'm accepting responsibility for what it was. I'm not blaming that circumstance. This is just what happened to me. And this mm -hmm. is why I became the monster I became. It's, it's to be able to show clarity in that. Wow. That, that way there's no misconception or there's no doubt. Um, and he helped a lot of us. He, he was able to see, okay, you may want to change this or add this because that can be misperceived as this. Mm -hmm. So he, he was able to see the things we weren't able to see. And sometimes he'd force us to dig deeper because by nature, we would only be superficial. He's like, that's not enough. That's something you tell somebody you just met. <laughs> wow. However, to us, that was a lot. I mean, for me, that was a lot because I'm not used to sharing anything. Many of us of, of Mexican origin, you're never supposed to speak ill of your parents and much less if they passed away. Mm -hmm. However, I had to explain to him that it's not your, that you're speaking ill of, of your parents. You're just stating the facts. Mm -hmm. This is what occurred. This is how I felt at the time. 
And this is what I believed at the time. And because of that, these are the resentments or whatever issues that I developed. He goes, you're not, you're not blaming your parents. Mm, I really like how you put that. I think a lot of people struggle with that, actually. And I appreciate how you came to learn the beauty and vulnerability. Because it sounds like it was safer for you to not be vulnerable. And like it was almost like just a very scary instance to just let that wall down. Yeah, it, it took me a while. Even though when I fully committed myself, it still took me a while. And I was still very cautious of who I shared what to because we were still in prison and because I lived the lifestyle, you basically had to prove to me that you're not only saying it, you're actually walking. Mm -hmm. Because if I have any doubt, I'm not sharing anything with you. That was one thing I was scared of. Like every time I do, I have interactions where I do things, I question myself, like, is this something I used to do in prison? Like, am I treating this person like I was in prison? I I don't want to carry it over. I don't, I know I am carrying some things over, but I'm trying to discover what they are as I'm interacting with individuals. Uh huh. When did you come to learn about and take the Defy courses? Was that in prison? Was that after re-entry? Did they help you with that? How did you so become associated with Defy Ventures? Uh, with Defy Ventures, once I went to Soledad, a lot of great things happened in Soledad. Actually, out of my whole Transformation, I think, during the moments of Defy and GRIP, I did that program also, and New Life Canine, I think the combination of all those three really just made me take off. Nice. Because um, I learned something in, in all three of them, and I was kind of dabbling in all three at the same time. Defy Ventures, I got in it because I was kind of intrigued by the starting a business. I thought there was hope that I'd get out. However, I didn't really believe I'd get out. But my thought at the time was, I'm going to learn what I can. That way, if my daughters ever decide to start a business, I could help them. So I said, okay, I'm going to get involved with this. I had no idea what it really was about. I was quite shocked being able to interact with people I would probably normally never interact with and how transparent and accepting they were. Because even while I was beginning it, in my mind, it's like, okay, what's the deal here? Like, it has to be a give and take. So so, so what's the take? Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was in, after half the program, that I realized there is no take. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's just give. So would you say what aided your resilience was the actual idea of entrepreneurship or was it the mentors or was it the education? What do you think made the biggest impact for you from that program? I believe it would be unfair if I just say one thing. <laughs> it was the combination, right? <laughs> because yeah, it, it was, it was the combination of actually learning more about entrepreneurial. I, I had taken some with Paulo Verde, some business classes the courses didn't really involve like a give and take. Like I'd be able to ask you, Hey Corey, uh, what's this? Or could mm -hmm. you explain this, this 
two minutes I could understand it. There was no interaction, so it was, I was eager to do it this way because now if I had a question or if I had a misconception of something, I could ask, mm -hmm. which makes a huge difference. Yes. So I was able to get more clarity on the entrepreneurial aspect. At the same time, it created a camaraderie between all of us in the group. There were many of us, because it, it, when you're preparing for the board, you need to focus on all aspects of it. And if you're preparing for the board and doing the five ventures, it's like, it's, it's monumental to be able to do both. So many of the lifers wanted to quit the five because it was in their eyes at the time too demanding and it required a lot and they wanted to focus on the board and the freedom, mm -hmm. which, which I don't, you know, I don't disagree with. However, we were able to encourage each other like, Hey, you can't quit. Like, come on, you need some help. We were helping each other out. Nice. And even though it was a huge group at first, by the time we graduated, it was a real small number. However, out of that small number, the majority of us lived together. So we were able to like push each other, like, hey, nah, like, hey, you got to get on it. You could, like, we were on each other. We, we were holding each other accountable. So that in itself was a blessing. Mm -hmm. The interactions with the staff from Defy Ventures, um, if we had any questions, if we had any inquiries or whatever, they were able to help us out. And then meeting all the volunteers that would come, the various from a regular employee for a firm to the actual executive body or investors or whatever. I mean, that in itself was those interactions. Every time I had one of those interactions, it made me feel more human. Oh, I love to hear that. And what a positive example of community in all three areas you just described within your classmates, within Defy and what they brought, and then within the volunteers and the mentors and how they made you feel human by all joining together. I love that. That's yeah. so encouraging. And then there's also the, I don't know if you want to call them games or interactions. That allows, well, it allowed me to lower my guard because many of the questions or the interactions, games, I'm not even sure what you would call it, uh, exercise <laughs> mm -hmm. that all of us would do, it allows you to know things about them and it allows them to know things about myself. With many things, even though our circumstances were different, some of the emotions were the same. And that is allowed to be transparent in those exercises. So those were, for me, they were emotional because I was able to be honest with myself. And many of the times they would ask me questions or whatever, and I'd be transparent, even though some of it was hard to describe. Well, not describe, but actually express. Mm -hmm. You could see I was on a roller coaster throughout the program. <laughs> I imagine emotionally, psychologically. Did yeah. the commonality... Was that the part that made you feel human? Like, hey, me and this guy who I have nothing else in common with, we both feel the same way when X happens. Yeah, definitely. We were spoiled because she brought in more volunteers than normal. So our interactions with volunteers were like on a regular basis. Nice. Oh, that, that, meant, that made a difference. That meant the world to me. 
what was re-entry like for you? Were you able to find um, a job that you feel that meets a purpose in your life? Or were you able to, were there people there to walk with you and encourage you? The re-entry I had, I do not wish upon nobody. Oh no, not a good example. And when, when did you, uh, when were you released? I was released December 10th. Of 2020? Yes. Wow. I'll describe my first two weeks. <laughs> well, I was excited because I had never been on a train, so I took a nine-hour train ride. Oh, wow. From up north to L.A. There's only like three of us on the coach. So I'm enjoying the view. I've never been on a train. I'm, it has areas of nice view. However, I was also taken aback by how many homeless individuals there are mm. along the route, mm-hmm. literally along the whole route. Oh, wow. I had no there idea. Was, there was a lot of homeless. Like, if you look to the right, there's a beautiful view. If you look to the left, not all the time, but a lot, they'd be encampments. And um, we had one stop in San Luis Obispo for about half an hour. I was kind of reluctant to get out because I was warned by the officer. Get on the train here and don't get off till you get to L.A. Because now we'll put out a warrant for your arrest. Funny thing is, when I get off Union Station, the Union Station I recall 25 years ago is not the same Union Station today. <laughs> so now I'm looking for a payphone. Which there, there aren't are no anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, how the hell am I going to get this program? <laughs> I'm supposed to show up at the program. So then I started asking somebody right there, hey, uh, if I had to get to this address, how, how do I get there? And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. So then I go back to the workers. I go, hey, uh, I got to get to this address. How, how could I do it? Oh, yeah, get an Uber or Lyft. I'm like, What okay. is that? I'm like, but is it free? Is it? Go, no, no, no. You just, you have to have an account and you give me a credit card or whatever. I'm like, hello. I don't, I just got out of prison. I don't. I mean, you're I just getting inundated with all this new stuff instantly. Yeah. So then I asked somebody that was right there. I go, hey, uh, I got to get to these streets. How do I get to them? And I go, oh, uh, just walk that way, then walk this way. So I'm walking down the street. I was shocked to see so many people out, like, late. So when I get there, I check in, tell them, yeah, this is all I got. They're like, all right. They're going to escort you up there, and you got to stay in your room because you're going to be in quarantine for two weeks. And I'm like, why two weeks? And then they go, because we have to give you a COVID exam. And once your COVID comes back negative, then we could release you. I'm like, all right. So does that mean it could be less than two weeks? He goes, oh, yeah, it'll just be a week. But we tell everybody two weeks. So I go upstairs. It's a little room. So they bring breakfast, dinner, and lunch. I mean, lunch and dinner. So every time somebody would come to the door, I would ask them, hey, uh, can I get like a fish kit or something? Or I don't have, I just got out of prison. I don't have any. Oh yeah, yeah. It's happened for two weeks. Oh my goodness. What a horrible time to get out during COVID. So every time staff comes by, I kept telling the same thing and they're looking at me like I'm crazy. Me not knowing I was supposed to get all that the first day. The instance I checked in, I was supposed to get uh, so many pair of clothes, 
fish kit, so much, so like everything basically. And I didn't get none of that. Oh no. So I was just taking water baths because there's a there's a there's a shower in the rec in the room. So all I could do was rinse all the clothes out with water and oh, then hang it and then two take, weeks take, take a shower with water. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. That is a horrible reentry experience. I didn't even have to deal with that in prison. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, when they're passing out toilet paper, there's a guy with a with a clipboard and a cell phone. And by then I'm already irate. Like, you know, I go, hey, I got here this date. I literally have nothing. I go, everybody I talk to keeps telling me, yeah, 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 but I'm not seeing anything. Unbeknownst to me, he's he's the director. So he's all like, really? I go, look, you can come and search this room if you want. And I try to step out. He goes, no, 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 you can't step out. You got to have a COVID test. I go, I've been waiting for that too. He goes, you haven't got a COVID test? I go, no. So you're like a prisoner in that place. Yeah. So they come and give me a rapid test. Later that night, you're negative, which I already knew I was negative because I was getting tested once a week. That's all of that. And I tried showing them those paper and they're like, no, no, no. A couple hours later, they finally bring me some clothes and cosmetics. So first thing I did, they told me, oh, you got to move. I go, I ain't moving. I'm taking a shower. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a shower. I put on some fresh clothes. And then I said, okay, now. So where am I going? So they move into. They really not using. sound like a good transition. I'm sorry you had to experience that. And the joy of getting out, there was a lot of frustration, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, those two weeks allowed me to. Uh, my entertainment was looking out the. They had a huge window, was looking out the windows and just watching the cars on the freeway because I was literally right across the street from the Coliseum, and oh the Los Angeles my. Football Club Stadium. Uh huh. So I got to see two games of USC. Nice. Because I was able to see the projector from across the freeway, because I didn't have no cell phone. I didn't have nothing. Man. But you have eventually found a job and gotten back in touch with your family, and it sounds like you're in a good place now. Is that true? I am in a good home. I am in a good place. I still have no job. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I have all my documents ready to be employed. As far as family goes, I'm slowly meeting more family members that I've never met. The majority of being from the side of my father's side, because we isolate ourselves from them. That way they wouldn't tell my father where we were. So many of them I've only seen since I was prior to five. And I think the other challenging thing for me is the relationship with my two daughters. That's, that's been my biggest obstacle i'm so sorry what a hard transition and just the trauma that all of you have to work and heal through it seems like there's no closure for you now that you're free all the hopes and expectations haven't seemed to come to pass like you would hope and the closure and the relationship and the the hopes just are 
just still just out there and you don't know what to go, what to do and where to go and how to fix it. And that's got to be very disempowering, I would imagine. Yeah. I, when I meet family members, that's the first thing they ask me, where are your daughters at? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I find myself lying for them. But it also makes me think, how many times did they have to lie for me? Yeah. Because you didn't see this coming. This seems like it came out of left field for you. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. We've gotten to the end of my main questions. I, will, I have the three short, quick little questions for you for our closing. So your first one is, what is your one tip to make the world a better place? Enjoy being uncomfortable because mm. that's what will bring out the best in you. I've got to write that down. Hold on just a moment. That's <laughs> genius. And that is from lived experience. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Jose. I really, I like that a lot. What are you the most thankful for right now? Wow, that one's hard. Because there's a lot. I'm most thankful for the possibility of contributing to the community I live in. Excellent. Well, lastly, what is your favorite quote? Uh, Maya Angelou. Let me see if I remember correctly. People may forget your name. However, they will always remember how you made them feel. Something like that. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I love her. I love pretty much anything she says. So you could have said anything and I would have <laughs> believed she said it. <laughs> but that one specifically I've heard before and really appreciate those words. Yeah. Yeah, that one really resonates with me because I think during my hardest times in prison, those were the ones I would cling on to. Mm -hmm. The precious moments I had with my grandma, with friends as kids, with just experience, like positive experiences I had. Mm -hmm. Those are definitely the ones that would allow me to sleep better. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with me, to sadly relive that trauma that was your early life. Um, I appreciate you sharing about the choices you made, positive and negative, and the outcomes that they yielded, and that we can learn from, from you and your experiences. And thank you for helping others now, for passing it forward, for sharing what you've learned through your life experience so that others don't have to take the same path. Yeah. I, I look forward to speaking, anyone that's willing to listen. It's, I realize it's, it's not, it's not for everybody. So I, I don't take it personally. However, I do wish that others don't go down the same path I have. Mm -hmm. um, well, keep speaking, keep sharing. I wish <laughs> you all the best in your, your upcoming educational ventures and finding a job that brings you purpose and joy and in healing the relationship with your daughters. You seem to be filled with hope now, like you weren't before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Jose. Thank you.
Jose speaks about his younger years from the standpoint of, well, this is just the way it was, with no hint of bitterness in his voice. And he never portrays himself as the victim. He teaches us that often our misconceptions and preconceived ideas and false judgments of situations, people, and things that happen to us that have been feeding our anger this whole time are often false. So if he, who had every right to hold on to anger or resentment, was able to see past it, to learn the truth, and to forgive, who am I not to? It gives me great joy to hear that Jose and his mom are finally able to have an open and sincere relationship after all these years. No matter how old we get, we never stop needing the approval, love, or acceptance of mom, do we? It is proof that healing can come, but maybe not in the way or the time frame that we thought it might come. I appreciate how he's striving to grow in understanding and deeper love. He is learning to trust, to love, and to have hope again. That's always beautiful. Jose's adamant and purposeful decision to change his mindset and lifestyle, despite the negative repercussions he thought he might receive from those who knew him in prison, is really nothing short of heroic. Can you imagine that peer pressure? He finally knew who he was and what he wanted in life, and he wasn't going to rely on other people to validate who he was any longer. Steve Maraboli, a decorated military vet, says, Once your mindset changes, everything on the outside will change along with it. Jose's life is witness to this truth. May we all have the courage to change our mindset and to keep on living it day in and day out just as Jose has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.